Our scripture reading for this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And if you're able, please stand for the reading in God's word. Verse 19, uh, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye, of the, lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. He either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, this morning that you do reign forever, uh, that you are our only hope that is steadfast and unchanging, that we can find strength and courage to love and love others in you, even in the midst of what can seem like an unending season of sickness or maybe for some an unending season of frustration or letdown. God, as we open up your scriptures this morning, would you give us courage to be steadfast and faithful as you are steadfast and faithful. Uh, would you give us courage uh, and the grace to continue following you uh, with everything we have and all that we are. And if you will, take a moment and pray for yourself and ask the Lord to speak to you today. And if you'd be so kind, uh, pray for me that I would speak clearly and be helpful to you. Oh, Father, we love you, and we trust you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we probably all have our uh, guilty pleasure of reality TV show. Uh, you might not want to be honest about which one it is, but we probably all have that TV show that we just love, and it's a train wreck from the beginning of episode one, and it just gets worse and worse and worse, and you can't look away. Uh, confession, uh, one of mine is absolutely the show called Married at First Sight. And what they do, on it, it airs on Lifetime. You can watch like all 20 seasons. So like there's a lot of people apparently watching it because there's 20 seasons of this show. And what they do is people apply, they go through this process, and then they get married at first sight. They take two individuals, take a man and a woman, and they blind marry them with an arranged marriage by experts, and they meet their spouse at the altar. And then they're married for eight weeks, and at the end of eight weeks, after uh, you know, a paid-for honeymoon and some paid-for getaways and some professional counseling, uh, they come to what they call decision day. And they have to decide eight weeks later, after they've stood up and gotten married, whether they're going to stay married or get a divorce. And to be honest, like the fatal flaw of the show is that they don't, like decision day isn't the wedding day. Decision day is two months after the wedding day. And so some people you know, they believe in this, they get into it, and they give themselves completely to this process. And uh, this last season we watched, three out of the five couples stayed married, which was much better than the last season we had watched. Um, and the two that didn't, uh, what was common, both of their stories, is both husbands and wives in both of the situations didn't fully step in. They didn't fully commit to uh, the marriage. They were half in, half out, because they knew the decision day was coming, and they knew they had an exit. 
the tag of the theme song, uh, the very end is, it's all or nothing. Now, why did I tell you that? Because this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, three things, and we're going to see Jesus tell and talk about three things when it comes to us. He's going to talk about our hearts, he's going to talk about our eyes, and he's going to talk about our lives. Our hearts, our eyes, and our lives. And he's going to do it using three illustrations. One about treasure, a second about a lamp, and a third about a master. Uh, And what we're going to see is this. Uh, Much like married at first sight, but way, way better, uh, Jesus is all or nothing. There's no middle ground. Uh, There's no halfway in or out. Jesus is all or nothing. He either has all of us or he has none of us. He either is going to have all of our hearts, all of our eyes, and all of our lives, or he's going to have none of it. And as we unfold, we're going to see he's going to either have all of our affections, all of our ambitions, and all of our allegiance, or none of it at all. There's no middle ground. It's all or nothing. So first, we're going to see that Jesus has all of our affections or none of them. Verse 19 again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where, neither, uh, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, the first illustration that Jesus uses, uses is about treasure. Uh, he talks about the treasure's location and about the treasure's security. The question is not if there's something you value, if there's something that's worth more to you than anything else in this life. It's not if. The question is where, because we all value something. Uh, we all have something that's worth more than anything else to us, and the question's not if, but where. So what is your treasure? What is the thing that you value more than everything else? Uh, one of the things I always laughed at as both a high school student uh, and then as a student pastor uh, with high school boys was this phenomenon in uh, country boys or country boys wannabes is they turn 16 and they somehow get a truck. And that truck might be brand new or that truck might have needed to die like 30 years ago, but they get this truck. And they, all of a sudden, know how to clean things. They know how to work. Uh, Despite the fact that they've never cleaned their room, and uh, their parents probably had to push them and push them and push them to, like, put their dishes into the sink. All of a sudden, they get this truck, and that thing gets washed five times a week, which is more than they bathe. That thing is spotless inside and out. And all of a sudden, they get this job mowing lawns or, or frying burgers, and they take all of the money that they have, and they invest it into this truck and they put new wheels on it, they put new exhausts on it, they put big sound systems on it so that everyone in town can hear them as soon as they crank that thing. But their room is still an odor disaster every single time. And they got this truck, and they love it, and it is the greatest thing to them. And before they know it, they've sunk thousands upon thousands of dollars into a car that is either already rusted out or is going to break down and then rust out. And what are they left with? Heartbreak, a country song, an empty bank account, and a hunk of metal that's going to get them pennies on the dollar. What's your treasure? Because see, if you, have, if you know what your treasure is, you know where your treasure is. If you know what it is, you know where it is. That thing that takes your time and your money and your attention and your work ethic. That's your treasure. That's what you value more than anything else. And when you know what, you know where. Because the location 
determines the security. That's what Jesus gets at. Uh, the where determines how long it will last. Your treasure is either in heaven or on earth. And if your treasure is on earth, it's vulnerable because you know snow happens and salt happens and things break down and other drivers happen and T-bone your car. Jesus says, moth and rust destroy. See, in Jesus' time, much like ours, uh, they measured wealth in terms of your possessions. And Jesus is getting at two particular things. He's talking about precious metals and he's talking about clothes. Uh, so clothes, whether you had banana or buckle from the actual banana store, or you just bought the knockoff at Sam's, or whether you have the designer clothes, or you like exclusively shop at Savers and the Goodwill. And they're wonderful, wonderful places. Uh, your clothes matter, and they send a message about how much money you have, uh, and some people use that very purposefully to let other people know they've got more than they do. Uh, they also, back then, as in today, they had precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, etc., and precious metals had values. And if you had money, you bought the precious metals, not as a like, scheme to like, get you to buy gold because the world's falling apart, so you need to invest in gold now. If you do that, that's fine. Uh, but they were actually buying gold because then gold was valuable, you know, money, dollar, gold standard. It was great. But there was one major problem in buying materials to you know, invest in things and in buying precious metals to make your wealth portfolio bigger. It's called Earth. Uh, there's this thing called bugs and humidity and humans that literally destroy everything we've ever had. Moths would literally eat their clothes because, you know, they didn't have normal houses like we do. So moths would get in and eat their clothes up. And then moisture, because the Middle East, we all understand humidity in St. Louis, makes things rust. And so if your value is in stuff that clothes and materials that bugs are going to eat and metals that humidity, even if you keep them in the driest of locations, is just going to eventually rust and destroy. At the end of your time, you've got nothing. None of it. It's all gone. And in those two things, people put so much hope and value and treasure. And at the end, they're just gone. They're valueless. They have holes and rust spots. The location of your treasure determines its security. Where it is is directly correlated to how long it will last. If it's on earth, it'll fade. If it's in heaven, Jesus says it will last forever. What's Jesus' point? If your treasure is something that you created or someone else created or something that you found, whether it's a person or a thing, it cannot and will not last which means you, you will lose it one day. But if your treasure is Jesus, the one who is ascended into heaven, who is the eternal God-made flesh, he will last forever. And I thought about this. Uh, I asked myself the question, why wouldn't you choose the sure thing? It feels like Jesus is just kind of like setting us up like, oh yeah, let's just toss all of my earthly treasures and I'm gonna treasure Jesus forever. Like I kind of felt like that's what I just like said. Like you shouldn't you know, put your treasures here on earth, little people, because they're not gonna last. You should put your treasure in Jesus. It's that simple. But if it was that simple, why wouldn't all of us, including me, choose Jesus the sure thing? Like, that, like, gee, like the Sermon on the Mount over and over again seems really simple, but it's just really hard to do. The Bible calls idolatry, uh, that there's something inside of us that loves the creation more than the creator. 
because sin broke us and it broke our hearts. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We want what we want, even when it's terrible for us. Like we want what we want, even when we know it doesn't go anywhere good. But there's something inside of us that still wants it, even though we know it's bad for us. We want what we want because our sin broke our hearts. It broke our affections. It broke that desire inside of us for things so that it's bent towards things that are bad and bad for us and not bent toward the ultimate good, which is God. There's something broken inside of us and sin bent and broke our affections. And that's why Jeremiah can say they're deceptive. We're deceived into thinking it's good for us and that it will last, but neither of those things are true. What's the greatest commandment that Jesus says? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Translation, all you have and all you are. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Which therefore means idolatry is loving something or someone more than God. And then to love yourself more than your neighbor. And we do that all the time. We love us really, really well. We love other people when it's convenient. We love us and other things that, that serve us really well. And oftentimes, God, when it's convenient or when it's easy. See, idol in Jesus' times were wooden statues or metal little statues. And we can go like, oh, we don't have those little shrines in our home like Russell Crowe and Gladiator. But our idols are still real idols. They might not be wooden statues, but we have them in the West. See, our idols, I would argue, are more deceptive. They're things like control and approval reputation, success, security, pleasure, knowledge, recognition, respect, power. So where's your heart? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our treasure follows our heart. You treasure what you love, and you either love him or you love what he created, which is, if you think about it, is ultimately choosing to love yourself because you can control that thing and that thing will serve you so you get what you want. So you either love him or you love you. That's your treasure. And Jesus' point is he either has all of our affections or he has none of them. There's no middle ground. It's all or Nothing. Second, uh, Jesus talks about our affections, and now Jesus is going to talk about our ambitions. Jesus is going to progressively move outward from our internal affections because affections lead to ambitions. What we long for is what we look for. Our hearts focus our eyes. Verse 22, the, lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus' second illustration is about our eyes. Uh, it's about lamp. He uses a lamp to talk about our vision, what we see, what we look at. Jesus says our eyes are our lamps. They, give, uh, they either give light if they're lit or they leave the user in darkness. It's pretty standard. We don't normally have lamps anymore, but we have flashlights and we can pull out our phone and click. Or you watch that person walk around with it 
on, and you're like, do I say something? I don't know, but they've got a light coming out of their behind and feel like they should know, but I'm not going to walk up to that stranger in Walmart and be like, excuse me, I wasn't looking at, you know, but your light's on. Personal moral conundrums of the day. Uh, thank you, uh, Apple iPhone. But Jesus says our eyes are our lamps. And the purpose of a lamp is to create light in dark places so that someone can see and have clarity about the direction they're going. Like that all makes sense. You wake up in the middle of the night or you're in a dark place, you pull out your phone, turn the light on, you navigate. Like it's nothing crazy. It's pretty simple. Eyes like lamps have one purpose, to help you see so you don't run into stuff. That's why I have to wear corrective lenses because I wouldn't be allowed to drive without contacts. It would be bad. I can't see the paper in front of me unless I'm this close. Gives you real courage to ever ride with me. Uh, If you've ever been to the eye doctor, it's a real fun, nerve-wracking process where you sit in this chair, they blow air into your eye, and then eventually the optometrist comes in and gives you a really hard question about 75 times in a row in 30 seconds. One or two? One or two? One or two? One or two? Two? Or one. Oh, trick question, Doc. I got you. My eye doctor even goes three or four. Glad I got a master's degree. And eventually, he gets to this point, or your your eye doctor, if she's a lady, she gets to this point where you can't tell a difference, but you're so nervous, and you've been answering one or two with such confidence that it looks the exact same, but eventually you're like, it's one or two. It shouldn't be the hard decision. You're like, can I see it again? Yeah, sure, one or two. And you're like, I can't tell the difference. One, one more time. One, two. Any other, any other options? Nope, one or two. And you're just like, two. I'm like, actually, I think one was better, but I already said two, so I got to go with it. But I don't know. But at that point, you can't tell a difference. You're just like, stop the interrogation and give me my glasses and let me go home. One or two. What's the point? They're getting to clarity. They started where you couldn't see the big E, and they're getting down to where you can see the little bit of E. And what they're really trying to get is clear vision so you don't run into stuff and you don't run into other people. He's attempting or she's attempting to correct your vision so that you can see, so that you can know how to read and write and drive without clearing and killing anyone because clarity gives you direction. And what Jesus is saying is that what we fix our eyes on will determine the direction of our life. It's simple. That our affections lead to our ambitions. That our heart will lead our eyes, and our eyes will lead our life. Jesus says our eye will either be filled uh, with light, or it will be filled with darkness, based on one factor. He says if your eye is healthy, which at first you're like, duh, Jesus, if your eye works, you can see light, and if your eye works, you can see the absence of light, which is darkness, and if your eye doesn't work, you don't know the difference. Like, that's not a helpful word, Jesus. Like, what am I supposed to do? You get on blueletterbible.com. Some translations say healthy. Others say clear. Clear. Uh, The word in Greek is uh, hoplus, uh, and the word shows up only twice in the entire New Testament, both times by Jesus, once here in Matthew, and the second time in Luke, in the same Sermon on the Mount place where he says, if your eye is hapless, if your eye is clear or healthy. Only two times it shows up. It's translated here in the ESV as healthy because Jesus is talking about one's eye, and they're trying to continue the metaphor, if your eye is healthy, you can see light and dark. I, I get that, but it's still, uh, the, the, the irony is it's still unclear what Jesus is saying by using the word clear. Sorry, bad, bad Greek joke. 
Anyways, uh, no more jokes for the morning. Uh, but the base definition of hapluce is not healthy. It's not clear. The base definition of the word is single. Single. Uh, Bishop John Charles Ryle said, singleness of purpose or ambition direction is one of the greatest secrets of spiritual prosperity. For our eye to be healthy, for it to let light in and not darkness, is, it for, is for it to be singularly focused on something. Not focused on a lot of things, not distracted by a lot of things, but singularly focused. And if your eye is healthy, it's focused on the right thing, which means, according to Jesus, if our eye is unhealthy, we're focused on the wrong thing. Your ambitions are either all for Jesus or they're not for Jesus at all. You cannot focus on two things. Like the, the concept of multitasking is a lie. Like neuroscience has actually just proved it. It doesn't work. You cannot focus on two things at once. You can be really distracted and really good at juggling, but you cannot absolutely focus on two things at once. You're focused on one thing or you're focused on another. Our focus is either on Jesus or it's on something we've made an idol out of. Power, control, comfort, security, respect. Because our affections lead to our ambitions. Our hearts turn and fix our eyes so that we're either focused on Jesus or something else. And as you play out the logic, it means our hearts and our eyes are fixed on either Jesus' glory, him looking good, or our glory, us looking good. Even if it's fixed on an idol, that respect is so that I look good, that power is so that I look good, that security is so that I feel good. It's all about me. So your ambition is either for Jesus' glory or for yours. Our affections are either for the creator or for the creation, which means our ambitions are either for the creator's glory or the creation's glory. And as you think about ambition, are both individual and corporate. Uh, on the individual side, like just you as a follower of Jesus, as someone created by Jesus for Jesus, you have ambitions as a single human being. But we also have ambitions as a church. Like we make up an us. Like we're not just a bunch of individual people who happen to show up in a room. Like Jesus' church is one body. It's one family. It's one body with many members. Like we all work together. And so we have to have a singular ambition as a people over a house divided against itself, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so we, as a, as a community of faith, are either following Jesus together with a singular vision of him, or we're playing tug of war against one another. And we're all going different directions. And I love that C.S. Lewis pointed it out in screw tape letters. Um, not canon, like not Bible, but I think he's right. Oftentimes, the devil doesn't try to distract the Christian with the morally awful things. He just distracts us with some lesser good things. And so if he can get our vision distracted off of things that are tangentially addressed and associated with Jesus, then we'll chase those and not really chase him because we're chasing this thing that leads us ultimately away from him. If you've ever had to uh, triangulate a position, if you're one degree off, it doesn't really matter for the first hundred feet, but you go one mile, two mile, ten miles, a hundred miles, and you're in vastly different places. He doesn't have to get us to go for the morally awful and sinful. He just needs to get us one degree distracted from Jesus and let us go. So where is our focus? 
I want to take a moment and just say how much of a blessing it's been to be one of your pastors. Um, this church has been here since the 50s, um, and I've uh, been cleaning out some things and found like 40th anniversary invites and paperwork, and there's a, there's a photo gallery downstairs, and we found a lot more photos. Um, and this building is it's just that. It's a building. Like Moth and Rust is going to destroy this too. But this building has housed a community of faith for decades. Have there been problems? Yeah, there's been humans. But for decades, there's been a people who've been in love with Jesus and had their ambitions focused on Jesus. And they've said, he has all, and we're going to hold on to nothing. So whatever it takes for Jesus to get the glory, we're here for that. And there's been a singular vision on him, and wherever he leads, they're willing to follow. This is an easy sermon to preach, because that's been the story of this church. Maybe not all the time, I've I've not been here all the time, but I have been in churches. But the main story of this church is our affections are for Jesus and our ambitions are for his glory. So whatever that means for our lives, we trust him. Um, There was a study, uh, the report came out from the North American Mission Board uh, a few weeks back, um, that this year, 856 churches will close their doors to never reopen. Just this year. Because affections went askew. Ambitions got one degree off and didn't course correct. But by the grace of God, that's not going to be the story here. So let's keep our ambitions on him and see what he has for us for his glory and our good. So what is your ambition? Where is your focus? Where is our focus? It's either your glory or Jesus' glory. So our affections lead to ambitions, and our ambitions lead to our allegiance. Our hearts lead our eyes, and our eyes will lead our life. What we long for is what we look for, and what we look for is what we'll give our life for. That's Jesus' logic. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our hearts, our eyes, our lives. Our affections are either for Jesus or for ourselves. Our ambitions are either for Jesus' glory or for our own glory. And our allegiance will either be for Jesus' kingdom or for ours. Whether, again, that's your little kingdom or the kingdom of a church. Whose kingdom is your allegiance to? Jesus says you can only serve one master. The word for master is the same word that's translated Lord or King, like when they translate it to Jesus, like King, Jesus, or Lord, Jesus Christ. Like that's the word. It means king. It's the one who rules over the kingdom. It's the one who has authority over everything else. There is no higher power. There is only one king, and it's his kingdom. You cannot serve two Masters, you cannot serve two kings. You will love and serve one, or you will hate and despise the other. Like, even in how Jesus talks, like, there's not middle ground of, like, you'll love one and like the other. Like, no, like, there's love or there's hate. There's serve or despise. There is no middle ground. Jesus says you will serve God or you will serve money. Literally, wealth. He's closing the loop, right? He's picking back up to where is your treasure, 
because ultimately your treasure is your wealth, the thing that you've invested in, the thing that makes you feel powerful, the thing that makes you feel secure, the thing that gives you respect and that you stand on. That's your treasure. And Jesus is closing the circle saying, your treasure is whatever you find wealth in. And because you love what you treasure, you serve what you treasure because you serve what you love. Like, that, like that's just, that's how it works. Jesus says later, if you love me, you will obey. Like obedience isn't, uh, obedience is the outworking of love, not obey to get Jesus to love us. Because we love someone, we do what they ask. Like it's, 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 that's like, that's that simple. Uh, affection leads to obedience. It's all or nothing. Like you will serve something. Like you actively do serve something. You're actively building someone's kingdom for their glory and their power. Question is whose? Is it yours? Or is it Jesus's? It's all or nothing. Affections, ambitions, and allegiance. You will love him, will be focused on his glory, and will live for his kingdom. Or will love us. And we'll be focused on our glory and try to build our little kingdom that moth and rust will destroy. So where, or maybe more pointedly who, if I haven't made the point yet, is your treasure? Who is it? Where does that person live? If you're here this morning, and coming to the hard but gracious reality that you are and have been living for yourself and your glory to serve your little kingdom, there's good news. <laughs> like, there's good news. See, the good news is this. The true treasure left heaven to come to earth. Like the one that didn't have to. The one that we were meant to live for and love and have our eyes focused on when we didn't love him and focused on us and live for our own little kingdoms. The treasure came down. The same Jesus who says it's all or nothing gave his all when we had nothing. Jesus gave it all for us, living perfect life we couldn't and dying the death we deserved. And in response, Jesus demands all from us. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It's all or nothing. But when we give up our allegiance and our ambitions and our affections for us and our little kingdoms and our life, we find him. And when we find him, we find everything we were searching for. Like he... He is defined as the treasure in Matthew 13. He says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Like Jesus is doing something on purpose. He's pulling the same word which a man found and he covered up. So he finds it and he covers it back up so no one can get it. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Our affections, our ambitions, our allegiance. We can either build a little kingdom and probably have a lot of stuff in this life. You'll probably find the power you want and the respect you want and the security and the comfort, but it won't last. 
and then you'll be left with nothing. Or you can say, I'm going to trust Jesus, and I'm going to let all this go, and I'm going to bring nothing to the table and receive everything from him. And I'm going to find that every sense of power and respect and security and comfort I was looking for is truly and eternally found in him. That that desire in you was probably not a wrong thing, but maybe you just got one degree off and it won't last under heaven. But when we find our desire in him, we find something that lasts forever. One story and I'll be done. Um, Kelsey and I got married uh, in September of 2014. And we spent the last three months of our engagement apart. Uh, not by design, well, not by choice uh, at all, but she was finishing up grad school. She's an OT, if you didn't know that. And so she had to do two three-month-long fieldwork assignments to finish up her degree. And one of them was going to be here locally, and one of them was going to be away. And we could either have gotten married in May and then spend the first three months of our married life uh, with her in Galveston, Texas, and me here, or we could spend the last three months of our engagement with her in Galveston, me here, and then be married and like actually live in the same house. Crazy idea. I don't know what, what the uh, married at first sight people would have done, but we chose to wait the last three months and then get married and live together. Crazy idea. Um, and I remember, uh, it must have been a couple weeks, a month after our wedding, uh, she told me about her field work. So she was in Galveston, Texas for about three months at a um, at a brain injury facility. Uh, she was really, she really still is into neuroscience. Uh, that was what her degree became after she left A&M. And so she went to a brain injury facility and worked with, honestly, a lot of men who had fallen off a lot of ladders, which is why I'm not allowed to go up on ladders anymore, uh, because men would go up on ladders and that would be in very poorly. And she watched something happen uh, with a lot of these men. A lot of them were married. Uh, why else is a man going up a ladder on a house? He's not doing it if he's single, let's be honest. And he would go up this ladder and he would fall and then he'd go into this facility and because he had such a traumatic brain injury, a lot of times their personality changed. They became bitter, angry people and sometimes they didn't even recognize their spouse. And what she would see over three months um, as some of the new individuals came in is at the beginning, some spouses would, would come by. And then the reality began to set in that that wasn't the man they married. Like, it's, it's him, but he doesn't remember her. He doesn't know who she is. Or he does remember her, and he's just angry all the time. And the person they married has become someone totally different because of a fault. And what she would see in some of these ladies is... They would start coming, and they'd start coming a little less, and they'd start coming a little less, and eventually they just didn't show up because that wasn't the man they said yes to. But then there were some other ladies who might have had the angry husband that didn't remember them, might have had a husband that was never going to know their name. But they said, I do, for better, for worse, till death do us part. And they would keep showing up.
because they believed and they said, I do, that it was all or nothing, which included the worst of the worst. For a man that wouldn't know your name, for a man that would just be angry at you the rest of his life, not because you did anything, but because he had a brain injury. All or nothing. Jesus either is going to have all of our affections, all of our ambitions, and all of our allegiance, or he's going to have none of it. All or nothing. So where are you this morning? Well, Father, I thank you for these men and women in the room that you've brought here by grace and design. Maybe to hear for the first time that you are all or nothing. There's no middle ground. There's no Sunday Christianity. There's everything or there's nothing. And I thank you for the men and women that you brought that maybe we've just been off by a degree. We didn't even know it. But your word came in grace and in kindness to us this morning. Would your word find good soil in our hearts and lives today? Would you fix our hearts and our eyes on you that our lives might be lived And we want to say thank you for Jesus. Who when we had nothing, came and gave everything. That we who the scriptures say were poor might be called rich. That we who had nothing to bring to the table might find everything brought to the table for us. And we just sit and rest in that grace and gratitude. In Jesus' name I pray.